Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. On the morning of October 25th, 1415, the feast day of the twin saints Crispin and Crispinian, patrons of cobblers and tanners, a ragtag, exhausted English army, commanded by King Henry V, prepared to give battle on a muddy field near the village and castle of Agincourt. Facing them was the might of France, serried ranks of men-at-arms clad in burnished plate armor from head to foot. The French already overwhelmingly outnumbered the English, yet more were arriving with each passing moment. Two months before, in August 1415, King Henry had landed at the mouth of the River Seine with a powerful army. The English king was invading France in order to enforce his rights to vast French lands and to uphold his claim to the French throne. Henry captured the key port of Harfleur after a grueling six-week siege. Then, on October the 8th, he led his army of 900 men-at-arms, 5,000 longbow archers, and many non-combatants from Harfleur on a dash across northern France. Their destination was the English enclave and fortress of Calais. The march from Harfleur to Calais should have taken just eight days. Yet soon after the English set out, the French began to shadow them. When the English reached the River Somme at the fort of Blanchetac, they found the crossing barred by a strong enemy force. For a fortnight, the English tried, with growing desperation, to find another way across the river before they could be cornered by the French. At last, they discovered an unguarded ford. But no sooner were Henry and his men safely over the Somme that French heralds appeared before the king to deliver a chivalric challenge to battle. On October the 24th, as the English army neared the vicinity of Agincourt, they found the road to Calais blocked by a massive French host. King Henry had no choice except to fight. On the sharp, damp morning of St. Crispin's Day, the English king drew up his army in battle array. He, his lords, and their men-at-arms on foot at the center of the formation, flanked by wide wings of archers. To protect themselves against a French cavalry charge, the long bowmen had planted into the muddy ground in front of them rows of stout sharpened stakes. Henry and his captains wanted to fight a defensive battle, but the French made no move. The French King Charles was not on the field. Many years before, he had fallen victim to a strange, incapacitating madness. In his stead, his host was commanded by the greatest lords of France. They knew the longer they waited, the stronger they would become, the English weaker. King Henry realized he had to make the first move. According to some sources, he ordered his men to advance with a cry, In the name of Almighty God and of St. George, avant banner. Other sources state the king's command was the briefer, more prosaic, fellas, let's go. The archers uprooted their stakes. Then the English marched until they were just within bowshot of the enemy. The archers hammered their stakes into the wet earth, then sharpened their ends again into points. Incredibly, while all this was happening, the French remained motionless. Henry now ordered his archers to shoot. The king knew that at this extreme range, the arrows would do little harm to the ironclad foe. Instead, 
he was hoping to provoke them into attacking. Sir Thomas Erpingham, commander of the archers, stepped out from the English battle line. He tossed his baton of office high into the air, at the same time giving a great shout, Now strike! The snap and thrum of five thousand bowstrings answered him. A dark cloud of arrows soared up and shadowed the wan autumn sun. A moment later, there was a chorus of clattering and banging as arrowheads bounced, bounded, and ricocheted off the helmeted heads and armored shoulders and breasts of the French men-at-arms. A cacophony of furious shouts, shrill trumpet calls, and urgent drumbeats burst forth. Then, at last, just as King Henry had hoped, the French charged. When the battle ended many hours later, the English had won an astounding, unexpected victory. Many thousands of Frenchmen lay dead. Many thousands were prisoners. These victims, killed and captured, were the flower of the French nobility. The survivors were in ignominious flight. By October 29th, Henry and his victorious army were in Calais. Eighteen days later, the king boarded a ship for home. When he landed, he was greeted by rapturous crowds. His subjects lined the roads from the coast to Canterbury Cathedral, where Henry prostrated himself at the shrine of St. Thomas Becket and gave thanks to God. The celebratory pageantry and popular rejoicing climaxed in London, which the king triumphantly entered on November the 24th. For Henry V, Agincourt represented, in the words of the English chroniclers, a noble beginning. In 1417, he returned to France with a new army and embarked on a systematic conquest of Normandy. Two years later, the entire province was in his hands. Then Henry turned his army against Paris. The hapless French king Charles VI sued for peace. By the Treaty of Troyes of May 1420, Charles agreed to give his daughter Catherine's hand in marriage to Henry. Even more consequentially, the French king was compelled to disinherit his own son and name the English king as heir. Thus, England stood on the brink of final triumph in the epic, brutal struggle that we call the Hundred Years' War. Agincourt has also bequeathed the greatest cultural legacy of any medieval battle. William Shakespeare immortalized Agincourt in his great play, Henry V. It features, among other things, one of the most stirring speeches in the English language. Many who are otherwise ignorant about the Hundred Years' War know of Harry the King and his band of brothers. Agincourt has since been the subject of novels, plays, poems, and the visual arts. In the 20th century, it was recreated in films starring such English master thespians as Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh. More recently, the battle was refought with vivid violence and considerable historical license in a Netflix production starring Timothy, or, if you're of a French persuasion, Timothée Chalamet as Henry V. In 2021, The Hundred Years' War will get the Ridley Scott treatment, with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in the starring roles. I'm hoping for goodwill hunting with swords. Last, and certainly not least, Agincourt is still a touchstone of Englishness. It supposedly saw the plucky, tenacious, ordinary Englishman, the yeoman, wield the trusty national weapon, the longbow, to humble the arrogant French chivalry. This episode of Great Battles in History plunges into the context, course, and consequences of the Battle of Agincourt. Following this Part 1 introduction, 
Part 2 details why and how the great kingdoms of France and England entered into the ruinous series of conflicts called the Hundred Years' War. Part 3 examines the English armies. It explains how a military revolution transformed these armies into the most fearsome fighting force in Christendom. In Part 4, we will trace the opening years of the Hundred Years' War, a phase that culminated in the momentous Battle of Crecy. Part 5 focuses on the Black Prince, the outstanding commander of the war. We will see how his victory at the Battle of Poitiers brought England to the verge of complete triumph. Part 6 describes how the French recovered and reversed the tide of the war. In Part 7, we are introduced to King Henry V and will see how he revived the war against the French. Part 8 traces the events that led to St. Crispin's Day on the fields of Agincourt. Part 9 takes us to the bloody carnage that took place on those fields. The episode then concludes in Part 10, which tells how the English first won, then lost France.